ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for the dawn of America No subscription, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. Welcome to another edition of the program. We've got an awesome show for you tonight. I'm really, really, really looking forward to uh, to this conversation. Our guest is Mark O'Connell, and he is the author of the fantastic book, The Close Encounters Man, How One Man Made the World Believe in UFOs, and it's the biography of J. Allen Hynek, and I absolutely loved this book. I, I just cannot put it over enough, folks. Uh, you know, over the years, people have said, I, I've always said on the show, that I'm more interested in the people, really, than the phenomenon. And as anyone who's listened to the show for years knows, uh, I've been begging Stan Friedman to write a biography, an autobiography, for years and years and years. And, um, you know, Stan keeps putting me off. <laughs> uh, so thankfully... <laughs> Somebody came along and wrote a, a, an equally compelling, if not more uh, fascinating biography of, of, a, of a major key integral player to the world of UFOs and educated me on a lot of stuff because I fancy myself a UFO history buff, but I really learned so much from this book, uh, The Close Encounters Man. I cannot put it over enough, folks. It's one of the best UFO books I've read in a long, long time, and suffice to say, easily the best UFO book that's come out this year. I mean, it, it's outstanding. So... Uh, congratulations, sir. Thank you for writing this book because it's well, tremendous. I really loved it. I really did love it. I cannot wait. Uh, I cannot wait to get, dig into this with you. Well, thanks for the kind words. I really appreciate it. And I have to say, it was a labor labor of love. I'm really proud of the book, and I'm just I'm really glad that people are are reacting so positively to it. Oh, it's awesome. It's it, and it's sorely needed for right now, uh, as we'll get into later. Uh, you know, so the messages of the book, I think, are just, I'm, like, I, I, I'm hoping that, like, people who aren't necessarily UFO fans uh, will pick it up and read it, because the messages in the book about the phenomenon, I think, are, are integral to, you know, the kind of messages we want people to know about. It's like, we don't know the answer to this stuff yet, you know, so we just want to give it a fair shake. It's like, I found myself in a real alignment with, uh, with Heineck about that, but... Before we get into the nitty-gritty of the book, give folks a little background. Who is Mark O'Connell, um, and you know what led you to writing this, uh, this book? Well, I am a writer and college professor living in southern Wisconsin. I have been a science fiction fan my entire life, going back to literally my first conscious memory. Do you want to hear about it? It's kind of a funny story. When, <laughs> sure. I, was about, when I was about three years old... Um, 
my mom, for some odd reason, on a Saturday night, tuned in to a new TV show called The Outer Limits. And there was an alien in that show that scared my little three-year-old self to death. And I remember... I remember running upstairs out of the rec room and just hiding around the corner and saying, I'm not coming out until that monster goes away. So that kind of set the, that kind of set the tone for my, for my life. I've just always been fascinated by space and aliens and UFOs and rockets. And, um, and then a little later in life, uh, my mom, again, my mom is the culprit. Um, she, was, uh, she worked as a librarian at our, our local library. And she would bring me in with her sometimes when she worked. And I would always gravitate towards, it was a small library, but there was one bookshelf (laughs) that had the books about, you know, they had the Eric Von Donneken and the Brad Steiger and the books about UFOs and poltergeist and Bigfoot and the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, Yeah, I know that. Yeah, yeah, and I, I just always went straight for that shelf and I just devoured those books. And so that led to, um, much later, <laughs> led to, in my, in my uh, 30s, uh, getting my first professional uh, screenwriting gig with Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, that was in the early 90s. Um, and so I did one episode for Next Generation, and that led to uh, four more episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Um, so that was a, that was a really fun gig while that lasted. And, um, a few years ago, fast forward to just a few years ago, maybe 2011, I was kind of casting around for, um, a new writing project. I had a new agent who was bugging me to come up with some, something fun to write. And I, uh, I started thinking about UFOs again. I hadn't really thought about them much for a few years. And I thought, hey, there's a lot going on. I should sort of, I should sort of reengage, see what's going on in UFO world, and maybe start writing something about it. So, so that's really what brings me to today. I started, uh, I started writing a UFO blog called High Strangeness, and just having fun with it. I didn't, I, it's, it's a little bit tongue in cheek. I didn't want to be super serious in my blog. I wanted to just have fun with it. A lot of people seem to respond to that positively. So. Um, but here's the thing. I, I know you experience this in, in coming up with topics for shows. When when you're doing a blog, you just you have to be coming up with new material constantly. Oh God, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was just I was scouring the internet weekly for interesting UFO stories to write about, and one day, lo and behold, I came across um, the website for Kufos, the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies. In Chicago. Well, I happened to be living in Chicago at the time, and this place was just literally just like five or six miles from where I lived. So I contacted the, the scientific director, Mark Rodiger, um, and sort of invited myself over to poke through their files, and Mark very graciously um, had me over and sort of gave me, gave me run of it. It's, it's all of Dr. Hynek's legacy his, of his UFO work is in a, is in Mark's basement, and and another person's basement in Skokie. Um, so I started visiting uh, Mark's basement on a regular <laughs> basis, looking for fun things to write about. And I always found fun things to write about. And on one of those visits, uh, Mark Mark and I were talking, and he said, you know, we've always been at the center. We've always hoped we could find someone to 
write the definitive account of Dr. Hynek's career. And I, you know, I just raised my hand immediately and said, please, I, please, I'd love to do it. Please let me do it. Yeah. And he said, okay, well, okay, go for it. Here, here are the files. So, and the way it worked out was just beautiful because, so I had, so I had Dr. Hynek's UFO work in all these files in Mark's basement and his colleague Mary Kastner's basement. But then I also had um, Hynek's uh, archives from his, his career as an astronomer and an educator at Northwestern University, which was just a few miles in the other direction in Chicago. So, so I, I started going to um, the university archives at Northwestern, and they just had boxes and boxes and boxes of Hynek's correspondence and his professional papers and speeches. And so I just I got really lucky because all of Hynek's archives were all right in my neighborhood so it just kind of you know it sort of fell in my lap and then it just sort of came together magically this whole story well it's tremendous stuff man i i loved it it's, it's hard for me almost to it's like where do you begin because usually we do an episode like this so it's like all right let's let's do a thumbnail on Heineck's life but the book is Heineck's life it's really there's so many elements to it i have a lot of notes here and we'll kind of get into them uh, you're saying about finding new Ideas for stuff. There was, a, there was part of me after I read the book. I was thinking to myself that uh, if you if you're ever looking for another book idea, I'd love to see you sort of flesh out that beginning um, before Hynek's born, when like people are, are are convinced that Mars has life, and like the New York Times is running stuff that's like clearly Mars is populated by people, and it's like <laughs> like as I'm reading that, and my jaw's like on the ground where it's like ah, oh, there really was a t- you know. Yeah, wasn't that? It's like we're trying to get see, back there, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what I wanted to do, and so you're you're talking about the prologue of the book, and yeah, yeah. What I what I wanted to do with the prologue was, um, number one, I wanted to establish that we have we've always been fascinated with the idea of life on other planets. We need we need to believe in aliens. I, I'm not sure why, but I think we need to believe in aliens. So I just wanted to establish that, that that this belief has been really core to the human experience going back a long, long, long way. But I also wanted to establish, secondly, that, um, that Dr. Hynek's birth was really just one part of that whole continuum. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, like I said, we I'm trying not to sort of uh, have us go chronologically, I guess you could say, through the book. What I find interesting, and as you point out about his academic work the book's really interesting in that sense because nowadays he's Heineck's kind of been lost to history in general because yeah. ufos are like completely verboten and they're in a weird like realm um so and it's very i find unfortunately with the exception of like the real hardcore like people like me and folks who listen to the show and that kind of stuff it's like People don't know the history of this stuff. And like I said, I fancied myself a UFO history buff, but then when I read the book, I learned so much more. Uh, I was like, wow, this is – what I like about the book is that it's like an evolution of his thinking about the phenomenon, and it kind of gives you almost a glimpse into what other people probably were thinking at the time too. It's like – it's just like people were – they were genuinely baffled by this and considering it, which is so different than how it is today. Yeah, and and you know it's it's funny. A lot of times I'm asked the same question, and that is, when did Dr. Hynek change his mind about UFOs? 
And I always kind of laugh when I'm asked that question because I have to say, well, as you just alluded to, there wasn't any one magic moment when a light bulb went off above Dr. Hynek's head and he said, hey, wait a minute, I need to start taking these UFOs seriously. It was, it was a process. It really, it really took place over many, many years in his life. And he had to, he had to jump through a lot of you know, mental hoops to get there, to get to where he could, you know, admit to himself and to the world that he really thought there was something going on there, which to me, that was that, you know, that made him a really fascinating character. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I noticed that in the book, I was trying, as I was reading the book, I was kind of trying to find that, that swing moment. And as you say, Mm -hmm. it sort of evolves over time. What I thought was interesting and it's funny because uh, I nabbed it in the book when I'm reading it. I have an underline, and then it's like the last line of the book. Um, it's it, it, at one point you're talking about how uh, he's changing his mind on the um, Ken Mantell case, mm-hmm. and uh, his his sort of rationalization for this was that uh, this had been four years earlier. This is uh, so he's thinking to himself like he's, he's starting to have doubts about whether that it's that there may be something to it. And, and his, his whole sort of line of thinking is that, well, in 47 when this first started, I thought it was just some crazy fad, uh, yeah. but it's still going on four years later. And the, the, I think the line is like, it, it persists. This yeah. phenomenon persists. And so, therefore, there's got to be something going on here. This isn't just some, some crazy fad. And I, I thought that was really interesting. As I said, uh, clearly you did too because you <laughs> finished the book with that line. That's, <laughs> you know, that's sort of like – that's a really that that should be like the clarion call of the of the, of the crying the cry of, of the UFO uh, you know enthusiast. So this persists. We need to enough's enough. Let's look at it. It's still happening. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and, and and the way I frame it in the book is um, that's the one fact about UFOs that nobody can deny, and that nobody can explain. Why does it still keep happening? Nobody can explain that. You you know pe- people can people people. People can make all sorts of attempts to explain this, that, or the other thing about the UFO phenomenon, and they generally fail. But this is the one thing you generally cannot explain, is why is it still happening? Right, exactly. And as you said beautifully just then, it's like that's – we can point to that. You know, we can point to – that's the one thing. We don't know anything else. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Except that it's been (laughs) happening, and it keeps happening, you know? Yeah. And that should that should in a sense be enough uh to convince people that it's worth taking a look at. But it's it's maddening in a sense. What that's kinda like I love the book. I, I mean at times it drove me crazy it's sort of in a in the in a FOMO sense. I, I I feel like I missed out. It was like I wish I had that it sounds like such a more exciting era for UFOs, uh, because they were <laughs> taken seriously because people yeah. you know, that was you never get a, ch- a second chance to make a first impression. That was like their first impression on on the world, and it was really fascinating to see people grappling with it. When today it's the question of UFOs is so stale, you know. It's yeah. like there's no excitement around it anymore. Mm-hmm. Back then it was like people were genuinely excited about it and talked about it. People on the street, it was like it was it was fascinating. Yeah, and there were, and instead of all the cable TV shows about UFOs, there were there were all sorts of magazines and paperbacks about UFOs that that you know were in, immensely popular. 
Right, exactly. I think you mentioned at one point, like Life Magazine has, you know, has yeah. like a cover story on UFOs, and it's, it's like, oh my God, this is. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, oh they man, seriously, yeah. Uh, now, forgive me. Sometimes I don't throw, necessarily throw a question out at you. I'm kind of just jamming with you here because uh, just sort of oh, talking fine. about my this observation. Is fun. <laughs> All right, good. Because <laughs> I don't want, like I said, I don't want to be like. So in 1972, what would the Heineck mean by you know? <laughs> Um, and I guess one misconception that kind of cleared up for me via the book was the, I guess, as I said, most people don't know their UFO history very well anyway. And it's like the old idea is kind of like that Heineck were, worked in cahoots with, with Blue Book. That like that he was, you know, that he was sort of an insider uh, with Blue Book. Obviously he was. But like that he was actively trying to suppress this stuff. And I get the impression from the book that that really wasn't the case. It was more, and you have a great thing that I guess influenced uh, Heineck that he kept saying, the Kepler story about how Kepler had to work with this uh, really gruesome dude and uh, needed access to his data. So Kepler put up with it and so he could get the data. That was Heineck's rationalization. Kepler was his hero. Um, that, That he had to deal with this blue book stuff in order to get the UFO files, because nobody else who was willing to give it a fair shake was going to be able to get it. And I think at one point he rationalized that to somebody or explained that to somebody. He's like, if they get rid of me, if I don't play ball and they get rid of me, they're going to get some guy who's totally going to play ball, and we're never going to get any look at any of this stuff. Yeah, exactly. So if so, in that sense, Heineck kind of uh, sacrificed himself for the cause, you know. Oh, absolutely, because, yeah. Because he remained in this situation working for the Air Force where he knew he was going to be subject to constant criticism, um, and yet he stuck with it because the data, having access to those files, was more important than his personal feelings or his personal reputation. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's it sort of, um, in a sense, the book vindicates him, I think, from that uh Urban legend, I guess you'd call it, or something. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. a misconception. It's like, no, dude, he wasn't like he had no ill intent, folks. He was he wasn't, yeah. you know, he wasn't a, a skeptic or a debunker. He was a scientist who was trying to look at this stuff. And and as luck would have it, he happened to live near where the initial study was going on. It's not even like they recru- you know they recruited him just because he lived down the street or something like that or nearby. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the way you put it, that he had no Ill, no ill intent. I think that's a really nice way of putting it. He really didn't. He he didn't have an axe to grind, you know. He he just wanted he just wanted a scientific study of the phenomenon, which is really not asking all that much. But no, but it no. was a constant constant his constant mission throughout life, and you know he and he came close and he came close and he never quite got there. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's kind of obvious that uh, that you're a screenwriter because the story, like, it it it's like a really it moves like a story. The book, I mean, and it's like you see, oh, you. you know, I can kind of imagine the scene like when they agree to the Condon committee, <laughs> and he's like celebrating, <laughs> and he thinks this is the this is the turning point. But it's like we know, at least I knew, you know, the reader knows if they know UFO history. It's like, mm-hmm. no, dude, this is going to be bad. Like this is, yeah. this is this is going to be terrible, dude. Stop celebrating. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a very dramatic sort of moment. Um, 
Yeah, so let me see where uh, – well, to get back to the blue book in a sense, I thought this was interesting. It jumped out at me. Uh, it's a small detail, but I think it's important. Um, during the D.C. sightings, because people talk about, oh, well, maybe the cases, the good cases didn't go to blue book and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That seems to be the indication, at least as a slight clue, in that when these crazy D.C. sightings were happening over the Capitol, uh, Ruppelt, who was running Blue Book, couldn't even get in. They wouldn't let him investigate as it was mm-hmm. unfolding. And it's like, that really stands out as weird. It does. And, you know, the only possible explanation I can imagine for why he would have been kept away is that the CIA was becoming involved. And that, you know, and that maybe the CIA pulled a power play and said, no, no, we're not giving this to the Air Force. We're going to look at this ourselves. That's, you know, to me, that, that makes sense. I can't think of any other reason why Captain Ruppelt would have been held back from investigating this huge, huge case when he's right there at ground zero as it's happening. Yeah. And yet, and yet he's basically sent packing back to Wright-Patterson in Ohio. Yeah, that's a crazy story. And, you know, Heineck... Heineck did, and I mentioned in the book later in the book that you know Heineck did often have these experiences where someone would approach him and say, "Hey, um, do you remember uh, the report I filed with Blue Book?" And they would describe their UFO experience, and Heineck would say, "Well, no, I never saw that." And the person would say, "Are you sure? Because I, I know it was submitted to Blue Book." So those kinds of incidents would make Heineck think, hmm, okay, so some of the good cases are not coming to the Blue Book offices. Some of these good cases are being routed somewhere else. Where they were going, we we may never know. Yeah, we never did find out either, yeah. yeah. No, like... <laughs> we certainly never found out. Yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, it's very, very interesting in a sense. It's um, I thought it was cool, too, uh, sort of around the same time that's going on in the book, uh, He's he's working for the Air Force. It's Project Stork, which I've, I've already I confuse all these, but it, it was Project Stork. I don't remember <laughs> yeah. exactly what the aim of that one was, but it was sort of like one of these UFO uh, study groups by the Air Force. But they have Heineck go out and and like infiltrate, not infiltrate, but just hang out with astronomers because he was like an esteemed, nationally known, you know, esteemed astronomer. Um, who I, I assume at the time really wasn't tagged with UFOs yet. So it's like, so he's just kind of hanging out with astronomers mm-hmm. at different universities trying to gauge their take on UFOs. So to me, that was another part of the book where it was like, this is fascinating historically. You talk about like government interference and stuff like that. It's like, it's not necessarily government interference, but it's, it's spying almost. It's like spy work. It's very, it's very weird, but cool. Well, that's certainly the way he approached it. He says he he did his best uh, cloak and dagger routine, because he didn't want the astronomers to know that he was formally surveying them for his boss. You know, he just wanted to he just wanted to make it part of a casual conversation, so he could you know just sort of elicit people's honest responses to his questions. And th- that was a fascinating period because this took place. Um, Right after Project Blue Book was was formed in the wake of Project Grudge being uh, canceled, that all gets complicated. Yeah, yeah. But Project Project Blue Book was the new version of the Air Force's UFO study. Uh, Captain Edward Ruppelt was put in charge, and he was a he was a pretty interesting and a pretty fair minded guy when it came to UFOs. Um, and he contracted with Battelle Memorial Institute in in uh, Ohio, I think Dayton, Ohio. 
um, to conduct some studies that were beyond the scope of, of the meager staff that Blue Book had. He contracted with, with Battelle um, to do studies of uh, basically what makes a person, how does a person experience a UFO sighting? Um, to how can we separate the knowns from the unknowns? Can we find any patterns in the UFO data that we've already collected? So Battelle Memorial, in turn, subcontracted uh, Dr. Hynek to do a part of that study. So Hynek's part of that was to do this survey of astronomers. And as you said, he traveled all around the country. He interviewed about 50 of his colleagues. And he found that about, if I'm remembering the number right, I don't have it in front of me, I, I believe, but it was about 10% of the astronomers he surveyed um, took the UFO phenomenon seriously and thought that it was worthy of study. Um, but generally, they did not want to be publicly <laughs> associated with it. So they, they, were, they, they thought it was great that Heineck wanted to study UFOs, and they would help if they could, but they didn't want to do it publicly. Yeah. Yeah, it's very – you wonder what the – you know what those numbers are like nowadays because it's uh, – like I said, it's changed so much. Some, it, yeah. What – I guess it's kind of like it's sort of, in a sense, a question of sort of like when he changed his mind. But it's like you might have a better uh, – you might be able to pin this down a little bit, I guess. It's like when did he – I guess when did he kind of become known as the UFO guy? Like to – I guess essentially first to his colleagues. And I think the public kind of like picked up on it with the swamp gas thing. But like when did – when was he – within the fraternity of astronomers, when was it like – was it was it always kind of a secret that he was working with Blue Book, or, or did, did it kind of like get around eventually? I think it was. I think it was. I don't know if secret may be too strong a word, but I think it probably wasn't very well known. It was. I mean, at the time, it, if you look at it in the right context, it was really just another research contract uh, between a university and uh, the military. Right. You know, this this is fairly commonplace. In this case, the U.S. Air Force contracted with Dr. Hynek through the Ohio State University, for whom he was working at the time. Um, so, if, you know, so to all intents and purposes, it was just a run-of-the-mill research contract between a university and the, and the Air Force. Right. So it didn't really, you know, it didn't really raise any eyebrows or anything. Um, but Hynek kind of broke cover uh, in the early 1950s. And again, this is pretty early in the game for him. So I was surprised to find that he was talking openly about UFOs so early in his career. But in 1952, and this is right around the time he did the survey of the astronomers as well, then he attended a meeting of the Optical Society of America, a, a, mm. uh, you know, a scientific association uh, in Boston. And the society um, did something a little radical at this meeting. They invited three scientists to present papers on the UFO phenomenon. And two of the scientists got up on stage and basically trashed UFOs. And then the third scientist was none other than J. Allen Hynek, who, you know, basically nobody knew who he was at the time. He was just a junior, you know, probably an associate professor at that point at Ohio State University. So Hynek gets up on stage in front of a gathering of his fellow scientists. And first of all, he chides the first two speakers for being so closed-minded. But then he goes ahead and says, I know a little bit about this subject because for the past couple of years, I've been working with uh, working for the Air Force, um, but, you know, debunking UFO cases. So he says, I know what's going on, and I know 
that there is, by this time, Heineck had identified that there was this 20% consistent, 20% uh, residue of cases that could not be explained. So he goes in front of these scientists and says, hey, this, is, this may sound silly to you, but I'm telling you, there's something going on here, and I think we ought to pay attention to it. So that was really the first time that Heineck stuck his neck out okay. and, and, and publicly you know, spoke about this to scientists. Hmm. But you asked about how he became known to the public. That did come, that came much later, and it came you know, in, in fits and starts. Of course, um, in 1957, Heineck, Heineck was famous for a while because of the whole Sputnik situation. Hmm. Um, so so you know, he was recognized. He was recognized in the public. He was the pioneer who set up the first uh, satellite tracking uh, system, global global satellite tracking system. Um, so he so you know he had risen to a certain level of fame in scientific circles. But then yeah, it, we get into the early 60s and we start having cases like, as you mentioned, the swamp gas case in '66. Those were the that was the time period when Heineck really started to become well known okay, yeah. uh, among the general public. Yeah. See, that's why I love this because uh, I just love this book so much because you hit on stuff that I remember now reading in the book but I didn't put in the notes. So there's a whole, like, folks, there's a whole, like, great story about how Heineck was involved with uh, they were going to launch the first American satellite and then all of a sudden the Russians scooped us up, you know, uh, you know, beat us to the punch and they launched Sputnik and it was crazy and Heineck had to, uh, had to sort of really uh, – he was on in over, overdrive here on this, dealing with this issue, and, <laughs> yeah. and became as as Mark said, he became like a national celebrity, you know, in the sense where you'd see a scientist on TV today when he wouldn't, he had nothing had nothing to do with UFOs. That's there's a whole part of the book. It's like his life. There's a big part of his life that had nothing to do with UFOs that he was integral in the scientific field for. It's really amazing. Again, it's like it's annoying in a sense because it's like just because he was the UFO guy, you don't hear about all these great scientific achievements either. Yeah, yeah. I that whole Sputnik story was one of my favorite stories when I was when I was doing the research, um, because he it's not you know you mentioned that made him a celebrity and that's true but it also more than more than a celebrity it made him sort of a voice of reassurance to the American public because mm. people were freaking out over Sputnik you know from coast to coast Americans were terrified because we thought this meant that the Russians could attack us from space at any time. So Heineck became, along with his boss, Fred Whipple, at the Harvard-Smithsonian Observatory, the two of them, Heineck and Whipple, became sort of these faces and voices of reassurance because they got on TV and they got on radio and said, no, 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 we're not under attack. It's a little 10-pound metal ball that's, that's orbiting the Earth. That's all there is to it. It can't hurt us in any way. And... And like I mentioned in the book, this is the other cool thing. It's not just that Heineck was the only scientist who knew about satellites who could talk about this to the media when the night Sputnik was launched. It's that he was literally the only scientist at his desk <laughs> when the call came out, when yeah. the news came out that, that the Russians had launched the satellite. Heineck is like the only man on Earth who can explain to the American public what the hell is going on. It's it is a, it's amazing moment in in the you know in space history absolutely yeah and you wonder like you just wish in a sense that like things had gone differently that, that the ball had gone a different direction you know that it had careened off something else and because he was he already had that sort of like 
I guess you could say re- reputation as someone who could reassure the public about something mm-hmm. like this. So if if there was if there was some kind of breakthrough with UFOs, he could have been the guy to explain this to people, especially based on his prior research into it. You know, it's that's, just that's uh, a such really a lost opportunity, such a lost yeah. opportunity. You know. Um, let me see here. I'm bouncing around on my notes here on this one. Um, oh, yeah, okay, so the American Optical Society, I have that in my notes because I thought here's a, a great line, folks, that you can use next time you're dealing with a skeptic, and that's what uh, Heineck said to these two guys, and he said, uh, ridicule is not part of the scientific method. I thought that was such a great line. It's like next time I'm dealing with some psychic making some ridiculous joke, uh, skeptic, excuse me, making some ridiculous jokes about this, it's going to be like, where did you – what part of the scientific method is it to make fun of people, dude? That's not, you know, are you doing a serious investigation of this or just making jokes? Yeah, that's, that is absolutely my favorite Heineck quote out, out of all of them. So I'm glad you pointed it out. Yeah, it says a lot. I mean, it really, uh, it says a lot. Um, that, well, uh, it's, you know, it, it's remarkably, and he said this is, again, this is re, really, really early in his career as a, as a ufologist. And he himself, up until that point, he himself had been guilty of, you know, maybe not ridiculing UFO witnesses, but definitely casting doubt on their word because he had been debunking cases for the airport for, for the Air Force for a couple of years now. So he was actually, you know, in a, in a sense referring to himself because he had done the same thing. Yeah. And, and perhaps it was sort of like uh, hindsight being twenty twenty combined with regret. You know, it's like... yeah. Because it seemed like, in a sense, he did. I think he did name a case later that he regretted. Uh, that that that. Uh, oh yeah, you know, the the, the case in Idaho Falls. Yeah, this was the police officer, right? Uh, oh no, no. Oh, the, I was thinking the, of one where the police officer's life got ruined or something. Because because uh, uh, I think Blue Book dismissed his case and, and kind of made him out to be a. a like oh a yeah. Of, I forget his yeah, Stroud. Yeah, Stroud. Bill Spar. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, that that's a sad story. That's yeah. definitely a sad story. The one I was thinking about was was in the early '50s in Idaho Falls when a a, a man and his two sons saw a, a, a metallic saucer, a metallic disc, uh, flying down um, uh, the Idaho. Uh, what is it? The what's what's the, the the is it the Snake River Valley? Yeah, I can't yeah. remember now. Yeah. At any rate, at any rate. So and Heineck went in and just said, well. Heineck, for that case, for the for his Air Force report, Heineck actually made up an atmospheric phenomena that didn't even exist. He said in his report that well, this could this must have been a rare atmospheric eddy. Well, there's no such thing as an atmospheric eddy. The only reason he came up with it was because the witnesses said that when the flying disc passed these tall trees, they didn't just make the trees sway; they actually made the trees twist. And so, and so Heineck was like, ah, twisting motion, that must be an atmospheric eddy. So that's what he actually put in his report. And several years later, he admitted that, well, that was something he'd actually made up. He had never heard of an atmospheric eddy before. They didn't exist. And he felt, and he, and he said, in retrospect, I was a complete jerk. He said, I never should have said that about this case. I should have taken the witnesses seriously, and I should have put a lot more thought into it. And I thought that was a, that's, you know, I was one of my big goals in researching in those early years was I had to find I I knew there had to be some case 
that Heineck regretted, <laughs> where he yeah. would publicly admit that he regretted it. And it took months and months and months of looking, and I finally found that case, and I was very happy to see it because, you know, obviously a moment like that just really humanizes the guy. Yeah, for sure, because it's really hard to say you were wrong about something. I think that's, yeah. you know, a problem that a lot of scientists today have, you know. Yeah, It's what's definitely. kept this thing from breaking through in a lot of ways. Um, well, I, I, all right, let me jump to one I definitely want to talk about, because uh, I know for sure that you'll you'll get into this, because I think you just wrote a blog post about it uh, today or uh, recently. Um, and if there's, one, <laughs> if there's one villain that emerges from the book, it's Carl Sagan. I came out Ooh, of this book. Oh, I came out of this book, dude, hating Carl Sagan. <laughs> like I had kind of always just been nonchalant about the guy. It was like, yeah, he. I guess he was a debunker back in the day, because I, I, you know, I was born '79. I got into this like really late, like in the 2000s. So, to me, it's like Heineck, Sagan, Menzel. All these people are like way, way in the past for me. I never really mm-hmm. had to deal with uh, watching them and stuff. So it was like reading the book and. I'm on Heineck's side, obviously. I've grown to love the guy over the course of the book. And then the Sagan just, oh, he just makes me so mad, man. He just makes me so mad. He was sort of like, he, he was, he's the villain of the book in a lot of ways. I guess talk a little bit, I guess, about sort of his role in the, I, I guess, the, the, as, his, as the antagonist, as the main, you know, as the main dude who, who sort of was like the... You know, the antagonist for Heineck. I mean, there's really no other way to put it. It's like every time he shows, Heineck shows up at one of these events and stuff, or a lot of these events, it's like the TV shows or debates or conferences. They always seem compelled to bring in Sagan, and it devolves into this this, this battle between the two. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating story, and it, it's really it was one of my favorite parts of the book to write. And I have I have to say, I've always been a huge Carl Sagan fan. I, I truly have. It was a huge disappointment to me to find out that he had this ugly side to him that came out wherever UFOs came up. Um, when I, I first came across this, when I was when I was researching in the Kufos files, um, one of the file drawers contained the letter S, and I saw two file folders that immediately jumped out at me. One said Spielberg, and one said Sagan. Nice. So you know, so those were like. Those were two two files that really really got me excited. So so I pull out the Sagan file, and I'm looking through it, and there's they they exchanged a whole lot of correspondence over the years, and there's always this very high level of professional respect between the two of them. So you know so so on one level, um, they were they were fantastic colleagues. You know they they communi- communicated a lot. They respected each other, but in this one area. Things went bad. So I found this letter um, from Dr. Hynek to Carl Sagan from the early, or I guess the mid-70s, in which he talks about um, an upcoming appearance they're going to make together. And Hynek essentially asks Dr. Sagan to call a truce. He says, could we just stick to the topics we agree on and not get into all this UFO stuff because he said it's 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 going to come out wrong because everybody thinks I'm saying that UFOs are a nuts and bolts phenomenon and I don't believe that. So could we please just not talk about it during this public appearance? And I thought, wow, he's asking Carl Sagan for a truce. What is going on here? So I started digging and digging and came up with came up with you know three or four I think really high-profile instances where Heineken and Sagan clashed in public, and it really got ugly. 
And one of the best accounts is came from um, the fantastic book Beyond Earth, man's man's uh, I think it's man's contact with UFOs, um, by Ralph and Judy Bloom. It's published back in the in the 70s or 80s. Really, really fun book. Well, they give the account of this appearance that uh, Dr. Heineck and Dr. Sagan made on the Dick Cavett show in 1973, right after the Pascagoula, Mississippi abduction and the coin helicopter case. Um, and they just recount in vivid detail how Carl Sagan just mocked and ridiculed everybody on stage, right, including right. Dr. Heineck. And so... I, I was just astounded, I, and I and I had that book in my collection, Beyond Earth. I had that book for many, many, many years, and I'd completely forgotten about that chapter. Um, so yeah, I, I dug and dug, and here's the weird thing that so that story with with Carl Sagan kind of climaxes with this futurism conference they both attended in 1975, and that's what the truce letter was referring to. So for the longest time, I had that truce letter in my hand, but I did not know the end of the story. Ah. And, and it was driving me nuts because I was coming close to my deadline to turn in the draft <laughs> of the book, and I still had no idea how the story ended. Well, I just happened to stop in at the Northwestern Archives. This is just one of these little miracles of this book that I just want to share. Mm-hmm. I stop in at the Northwestern University Archives because I'm looking for one particular thing. I think I was looking for photos that day. And the archivist, um, the archivist Kevin says, "Hey, Mark, I've got something you might be interested in." And he he takes me over to this computer console in another room, and he says, "We just got done digitizing our entire collection of the Daily Northwestern campus newspaper." And he said, "I and he said he said, now wait a minute, let me do a search." And he goes, "I'm going to search for Heineck's name," and he said, "Whoa, Heineck's name comes up like 318 times." in this whole collection of the campus newspaper. So I sat down at this terminal, and I started looking through all 318 entries, and I found an entry that talked about this futurism conference coming up at which Dr. Heineck would be speaking along with Dr. Sagan. Yeah. And suddenly I had the key to this story, and I used that information, using that information of where and when this futurism conference was going to take place, I found an article that appeared in a 1980 UFO magazine in which they had a reporter at this conference who documented this battle royale between Sagan and Heineck. And it's an incredible story, and Carl Sagan comes off as a complete jerk, and Heineck comes off as, you know, a totally decent and totally respectful, questioning, open-minded scientist. And it and it was the perfect ending to the story. It kind of yeah. brought it to its head, and just really kind of established who these two men were, and established you know how how hard it is to get someone to change, especially a scientist, to change his mind about something. Yeah, but what I thought was interesting, in a sense, too, was like, I mean, and I'm sure this uh, there's a lot of debate about the nature of Sagan and was he, you know, in cahoots with the government and that kind of stuff. Because to me, everything he did with Heineck, uh, as far as like when they would debate this stuff in public, and you pointed out in the book, was really like dirty, underhanded in a sense. Because they, you know, they would get into this debate sort of format and. Heineck's whole argument, as you say, as you mentioned from the truce letter, was like, 
Heineck was like, I don't know. I'm not saying these are aliens, man. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm not. I'm just saying we should try and figure it out. And but but Sagan wouldn't debate that argument with him. Sagan right. would only go from the direction of it's silly to say these are aliens. Right. And it was so like reading reading sort of the exchanges between them in these different uh, settings is 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 maddeningly frustrating because it's like. Dude, would you just would you just cut the cut the BS, man? Like, yeah. and, and 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 talk about this issue um, on equal footing with Heineck, or are you just gonna play these games? And and it was he, and it's like the same. You see the same stuff from skeptics today. You know, it's like they can't they can't have a straight up conversation about this. They have to play games. Right. And for for me, one of the real disappointments of that whole Carl Sagan story was. Um, when I when I started finding all these accounts of of these these confrontations that he and Dr. Heineck had, had, you know, my first my first impre- impression was that their differences of opinion stemmed from differences in scientific philosophy. But that's not true. It wasn't that high minded at all. It all came down to money. Mm. Carl Sagan hated the idea that one penny of research money should go to UFO research because. Right. That would be a penny that he wouldn't get for his planetary research. That's what it all really came down to for Carl Sagan. It was all about money. He did not want J. Allen Hynek to have one penny of research money given to him. Exactly. And, and honestly, uh, another, another sort of thing that bubbled up from reading the book was you make a point that that was Sagan's argument. It's a waste of money on all this stuff. And if you look back now, uh, you point this out in the book. It's like SETI has been going on for like 30 years. They've probably wasted <laughs> billions of dollars on this. Yep. If you put 10, why not give 10% of that money to UFO studies? Exactly. You know? Exactly. How, how hard would that be? Uh, it <laughs> it just, is frustrating. It really is. It really is. <laughs> and, and like I said, the book is, and, and it's no fault of Heineck. So he was the one. He was the one trying to change this, the way things turned out. But it's like yeah. the whole book is this series of, like, missed opportunities. It's like, oh, yes. man, you know, because you mentioned in the, the, when the Condon report comes out and uh, how – and this is another sort of thing that stood out to me that I had never uh, known or realized, that that was actually kind of a golden age for ufology. That yeah. more people – because I always look back on it as that was what – that was what killed you. Fall, uh, you know, killed, killed the serious look at UFOs from the establishment. Let's say, mm-hmm. um, but but you kind of make a point in the book that even though Condon, you know, put the kibosh on UFOs from a government perspective, it it sort of opened the eyes of a lot of uh, scientists. Yeah, and you know, and in large part, it was because the conclusions of the Condon report were were so ridiculous, and it was you know, it was evident. To almost anybody who who read the final report, because the the entire report builds up a case for the possibility, at least, that UFOs are a real phenomenon and they're worthy of study. And then the final chapter is written by Edward Condon, and he just squashes the entire report and he says, "No, this is a bunch of crap. There's, there's nothing here. We're yeah. done." And, and, yeah, you would think that that would have killed ufology, but it had a reverse effect with Dr. Heineck because, all of us, because it led to the cancellation of Project Blue Book, first of all. But once Heineck was free of the constraints of working with the Air Force, 
um, he could actually start, you know, speaking his mind and, and going his own way with UFO research. So for him, you know, ultimately it was it was very liberating. Yeah, it seemed that way. It seemed that way because, as you say in the book, then he started pursuing a whole bunch of sort of like uh, more fringy type stuff that even his friends were like, whoa, what are you doing, man? But <laughs> yeah. he was willing to like look at even uh, even stranger stuff. There's so many elements of the book that I really love because it's like a part of the book too is he's he's sort of trying to come to grips with this UFO thing it's so hard like in this modern age to get put your mind back to the way people thought back then but you know he's struggling with this stuff and then oh no all of a sudden here come human here come aliens here come (laughs) here come the the people on the craft like things are happening all of a sudden there's cases now with these things and you know, he didn't know what to do about that. He wasn't really sure, you know, what to think. Yeah, it, it was an interesting part of his story, I thought, that, you know, here's, here's the guy who developed the Close Encounters categories, categorization system that includes Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which mm-hmm. is very specific about the involvement of, you know, alien, well, not alien, I shouldn't use yeah, that word, yeah, yeah. but occupants, entity, entities associated with the UFO, so, you know, Heineck felt he had to include that, but he hated the fact that he had to include that in his system <laughs> yeah, yeah. because he was, never, he was never truly comfortable with, with um, the idea of entities associated with this phenomenon. I mean, his, his thinking changed a little, as I point out in the book, you know, after he, after he went to um, Australia and Papua New Guinea and talked with Father Gill and the witnesses to the, to the Gill uh, Close Encounter case, and then he came back home from that case, and he met uh, uh, Calvin Parker and Charles Hickson in Pascagoula, Mississippi, right after their abduction. And also along in there, you know, he met Barney and Betty Hill and had a chance to interview them under hypnosis. So those experiences um, it, it, at least started to help him become more open-minded about the possibility of entities. Yeah. But it was always a struggle for him, always. I can imagine, yeah, yeah. Because nowadays, part, we're, we're, you know, we, these stories are part and parcel with the phenomenon. But, like, back then it was like, like I said, it's like, what? <laughs> you know. Yeah, exactly. It, it just seemed so, so crazy. Yeah. That it, it was, it, it, to even mention it just brought instant ridicule and disbelief. Yeah. Right, right. Especially because if you're trying to take this seriously, you want to, like, from his point of view, and even today, it's like you want to divorce it from the entity aspect of it. Yeah. You want to be like, let's just look at the... But the crazy UFO, the F part, you know, the flying saucer part, you know, we'll worry about what's in them once we know for sure that they exist. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So very, very uh, remarkable stuff. And what I thought was really cool, it's a double-edged sword. It's another thing that makes, kind of breaks my heart reading the book. It's like you talk about these three cases. Just well, the, I know they were sort of separated by time, uh, the Gill case and the. Pascagoula case and the Hill case, but it's like there's no, there hasn't been like an iconic case, maybe Stephenville, Phoenix Lights, so that gives us 20 years, really. Yeah. You know, there hasn't been an iconic case at all. And it's heartbreaking in two ends because there's no iconic cases. And back then, when these iconic cases were happening, he was going to them. Yeah. It, it, that was really cool to me. It's like the Pascagoula thing happens, it gets in the news, and He's on a plane. He's down to Pascagoula to find out what happened. It's like that's awesome, man. Like, yeah. like we need. I wish there was like a genuine, legit scientist who 
I wish there were more iconic cases happening, but but even yeah. maybe that's because there isn't a guy going down and looking at at the melee as it happens. You know, yeah, to me and, that first and, response thing is like, wow. Yeah, and not only that, but not only is he is he literally a first responder, but all of the reporters that have gathered in Pascagoula, Mississippi, they all want to talk to him because they know he's the guy who's going to explain this to us. You know, nobody else, just Heineck. Right. It's really, it's an incredible glimpse of a world of UFOs that like just does not exist anymore. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's just. I, I, I really enjoyed. Uh, I really enjoyed writing about the Pascagoula case because that case is is really personally. Um, special to me because um, at the beginning of the show I told you all about my, my childhood and my upbringing and how I became interested in all this. When the, when the Pascagoula abduction took place in October 1973, I, so I was, uh, I was 13 years old then, and I vividly remember what a big, de- what a big deal that story was. I heard about it on the radio. We always had a radio on in my house, so we always got the news on the radio. They were talking about it on the radio news. They were talking about it on the TV news. It was there were articles in the newspaper about this about this case where these two men, men were apparently abducted um, by by weird entities and taken aboard a UFO. That was the first time that a UFO incident became real, like immediately real to me, because up till then I had just been reading about them in books. You know, it was yeah. like history. And and here here's this case. It's not history. It's it's just happened, and people are taking it seriously, and everybody's talking about it. And a lot of people are scared and freaking out over this. So to me, that case was kind of like the eye opener. That was the case where I I realized, oh wow, this this is real stuff. These are real people. This isn't just stories in a book. Well, to break away, I guess in a sense from. Uh, from your book and sort of just get a little bit speculative. Like, why do you? Because you're, you know, you, you you've done your homework on this UFO stuff. You know what you're talking about, you know. So what? Uh, I'm interested in your perspective on this. Like, why do you think there are no iconic cases anymore? Well, it kind of make when when I wonder about things like that, it kind of makes me wonder whether there is some conscious conscious, deliberate um, motive that we can ascribe to the, to the phenomenon itself. It's almost as if the phenomenon has decided to pull back yeah. and go back into hiding mm. for some reason. And I can't explain that. I know because what I'm saying is I'm assuming that there is an intelligence behind the phenomenon, which of course cannot be proven, but it certainly seems like there could be and intelligence behind the phenomenon. So for me, I just sort of look at behavior, and I think, well, maybe they, you know, maybe they've changed their methods. They still seem to be, you know, giving out information in some way, but they seem to be changing their methods. It's funny because I just had, I just did an interview this morning, of all things, on a radio station in Dublin, Ireland. Oh wow! And uh, yeah, and and the 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 host of the the host of the show started talking about, well, now, how come, you know, everybody in the world has a camera in their pocket now? On oh, God, I hate that argument, yeah. You know, how, how come we aren't seeing millions and millions of photos of great UFOs? And, you know, and my response was, well, you know, 
if you were the UFOs, wouldn't wouldn't you take that into account? Wouldn't you just become a million times sneakier and stealthier? Yeah. yeah. Now, and 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 I've made the point, and it, it made me it it occurred to me that um, a week ago, millions of us were looking up in the sky and taking pictures of the eclipse. Right. You know that was that may have been the moment the moment when the most cameras of all time were pointed at the sky taking pictures at the exact same time. And did anybody find anything weird on their on their photos? I have I had one commenter on my blog who said, who said you can bet sometime in the next couple of days people are going to start coming up with eclipse photos that that have weird things in them that shouldn't be there. And I haven't heard anything yet, but I certainly think it's possible. So, to answer your question, I I, I just sometimes I kind of come to the only conclusion I can come to is that there's some thought behind this that they're they're deliberately messing with us. They're deliberately manipulating with us. They're playing with our expectations. They're playing with our um, our our fears. Obviously, um, I've used this analogy before. I'm sorry if this is going too far, but I sometimes refer to the old Monty Python sketch called Confuse a Cat. Does yeah. that ring any bells? No, no, it's a little before my time, but all right. I, <laughs> I, I was afraid of that. Well, you know who Monty Python's flying course, circus yeah, is, right? Okay, yeah. the British comedy troupe. They they once did this extremely weird sketch called Confuse-A-Cat. I know this is going to sound ridiculous, but please bear with me. So in this sketch, this this man and wife are upset because their cat has just sunk into just a, a funk. The cat has lost its will to live, apparently. <laughs> so they, they call in the vet, and the vet can't do anything. And the vet says, this looks like a case for Confuse-A-Cat. So they call in Confuse-A-Cat, and it's just the Monty Python guys doing, they set up a little stage in front of the cat, and they just start doing all these weird nonsense skits. And after a few minutes of this, the cat gets up and prances away. And and everybody says, thank God Confuse-A-Cat saved the cat. And I sometimes think that we are the cat and the UFOs are the Confuse-A-Cat squad. It's almost like they're putting on this bizarre show that makes absolutely no sense, but they're doing it to sort of, you know, to sort of jolt us out of our everyday consciousness and yeah. and try to get us to think differently or see things differently. Yeah, I hope that's the case. Yeah, <laughs> that's my speech. <laughs> yeah, well, it's very yeah. Just like I said, the book it, it makes me pine for a past that. Uh, you know, it it just it, it it I don't know if it's it just seems if it's if if it's just my imagination I'm imposing it because I read the book but it's like it seems like when Heineck as Heineck winds down that's when this this seems to wind down as well that's kind of the remarkable part I think you even yeah. mentioned like in the book even by the 80s there really weren't any you know in his last few years there really weren't any major super cases yeah yeah I mean there you know there were a few things like the 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 Hestalen lights that was a big thing and. Um, you know the the uh, the Hudson Valley sightings. Yep, yep. So, you know there were some sightings that still uh, sparked Heineck's interest. But you're right, there wasn't anything really spectacular, anything that really became a global news story. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think there's something to be said uh, if, if one was going to dig into that sort of transition period. It's like uh, I've often noted that that's when a lot of these sort of subcultures exploded too. You know, it's mm, like yeah. uh, cattle mutilations, crop circles, abductions, Roswell, all that sort of came, you know, it sort of 
bloomed and burst forth like toward the late 70s and uh, early 80s. So, it Well, makes yeah, you, you know, that is a weird thing because so Dr. Hynek died in 86. In 87, that's when Whitley Strieber's Communion came out. And that's also when, um, oh, gosh, what's the Intruders? I Bud can't Hopkins. Remember. Bud Hopkins, yeah. I'm pretty sure Intruders came out in 1987 also. And, you know, those two books just completely rewrote the book on alien abductions. And they just both happened to come out the year after Heineck passed away. I think that's kind of interesting. Pardon the interruption, but I'm Mike Wilbon. Tony, more than 30 people in Stephenville, Texas, say they saw a UFO. You believe them? You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Tony Kornheiser, believe him. Who do you think was up there getting probed? I thought it was interesting because I read um, Firestorm, the Andruffle book about um, mm-hmm. James McDonald, which is outstanding also. Uh, you guys, the two books together are like, uh, I, I'm dying to go back and read that one now that I've read uh, your book. I've read, I read Firestorm a long time ago, so it's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I'd like to do a refresher myself on it now because uh, it's very similar. So did they, did he, aside from when, and you can tell this story, but aside from, from when McDonald's <laughs> stormed into his office and, and reamed him out, did he have any... Um, other interaction with McDonald? Because to me it was like you said that you know McDonald left the office and he was kind of like, oh, thank God there's somebody else who, who's looking at this. Mm-hmm. But then he never shows up again in the book. Did What was the, what was the relationship between those two like? Because you would think that they'd be a dynamic, and I know McDonald probably passed away a few years after that, I'm willing to bet. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I don't think they had much time to interact. But you would think that those two would have been a super tandem to work together on this kind of stuff. I know. Talk about lost opportunities. You're right. They 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 would have been an incredible dynamic duo. Um, but I, I to answer your question, I I if I came across anything at all in Heineck's, uh records involving Dr. McDonald, there wasn't anything I recall seeing that was that was really very noteworthy. Yeah. As I mentioned as I mentioned before with Carl Sagan, the, um, um, Dr. Heineck maintained you know very cordial professional relations with a lot of fellow scientists um, you know because there was a, there was always a lot of exchanging of ideas going on there was always a lot of uh, you know hey I'm, I'd like to do this project I'm wondering if you or your school would be interested in working with us on this there was always a lot of there was always a lot of correspondence between Heineck and other scientists and I, I and I have I have a feeling that I did see some here and there between him and Dr. McDonald, but nothing that really stands out in my memory is very significant. Yeah. All right. Interesting. Um, now, do you think, here's a sort of another kind of ponderous question in a sense. Um, you know, we talk about the MJ-12. It's like, oh, the secret government group of uh, scientists and stuff. <laughs> we, we kind of know from your book about the Invisible College, which is kind of like the antithesis in a sense, like a, like a secret, <laughs> an underground group of academics and scientists who are looking at this stuff or who were looking at this i guess the question is do you think do you think that's carried on or do you think sort of like the people looking at it have gone their separate ways like do you think there's this there's this sort of uh collegiality between academics who are looking at this or are they not even tell each other that they're doing it i i my sense is that there's really not a whole lot going on, and I hate to say it; it's kind of heartbreaking. Oh yeah, no, I mean that's it doesn't seem right. <laughs> but but uh, but at the same time, you know, there are still plenty of people out there who are are interested, and you could even say probably vitally interested in the topic. 
you know, so there there probably are pockets here and there where there are people, you know, doing at least some casual research. But as far as any, like, force to be reckoned with, no, there's really not. As I mentioned, uh, Dr. Hynek's Center for UFO Studies, it's, it's, it's not even a physical space anymore. It's just relegated to, you know, a bunch of file cabinets and bookshelves in a couple of basements in Chicago. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, there's not much else out there. I mean, we all know MUFON is, you know, MUFON is this huge, huge, huge organization that yeah. is, in, you know, heavily involved in all aspects of the UFO phenomenon. Um, but as much as MUFON likes to say we're scientific, they're not really scientific. So no, they have a lot of problems at the moment. I don't yeah. know if you're <laughs> Oh, I, I, I left MUFON recently uh, for good reasons. So, I, yeah, I think I, we're on the same page then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think we are. Um, and I had I had several reasons for leaving, but uh, yeah, no, no regrets there. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, so but as far as you know, scientific. Um, but here's the interest. I don't see anything going on with UFOs. But 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 I also want to say though, in the scientific community, what's getting so much attention these days is the search for exoplanets. Yeah. And this and the search for for habitable habitable planets around distance, well, not distant, around nearby stars, the ones we can see, um, that, that may be capable of supporting life similar to ours. So if you think about it, science actually is sort of lo- looking in the same direction as the UFO phenomenon. Yeah. They're looking at something different, but they're looking in the same direction, I think. So to me, I kind of take that as... I kind of take that as encouragement and comfort, like something is being done. People are paying attention to this idea, to this concept. You know, they're, they're, they're using different words and they're using different terms. And yeah, yeah. None, of, none of these exoplanet scientists would ever talk about UFOs. But as I said, they're, they're kind of looking in the same direction anyway. They're looking at the possibility that um, – Something else exists that we don't know and don't understand yet. And think about the explosion in that just that one field. Mm. It wasn't that long ago that um, most scientists would have told you the chances of life developing on other planets is exceedingly rare. But now all of a sudden in the last few years we've just had this, this explosion of information about these other planets and all of a sudden we're looking at, whoa, there, there are actually a whole lot of planets out there yeah. that could be capable of supporting. That's a huge paradigm change, and it's just happened within the last couple of years, and it's not just happened among scientists. We're all going along with it, right? Mm, yeah, we, absolutely. We, we all are like hanging on that news and being like, oh, my God, maybe this is the planet. Maybe this is the one. Maybe it's Europa, you know? So I, I've I've been following that whole thing really really closely and with a lot of excitement because, you know I think maybe maybe this is the next phase of 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 what we're looking at maybe this is the next phase of studying this phenomenon I don't know, I'm kind of I'm kind of speculating wildly here which I'm prone to do, um, but it does it really excites me because I think that's the closest thing we have right now to that golden age of UFOs. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and I hadn't I haven't heard it put that way, but you're right uh, in a sense because like they're looking they're looking for the aliens essentially. Yeah, folks. I mean, <laughs> like, yeah, they are. They, I mean, they literally minute, are. But, yeah, they're looking for aliens, even if it's an amoeba on Europa. That's what they're looking for. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, so it's like, because that's one exciting. thing leads to another. Yeah, for sure. You just don't know. And to throw a dig in at our friend Carl Sagan 
for everyone lauds him as he say, oh, billions and billions of stars. No, man, there's trillions and trillions of stars. You were wrong about that. Yeah, Carl, and Carl why Sagan. were you wrong? How could you be so wrong? <laughs> yeah. Come on. <laughs> so everyone <laughs> called you a visionary, but it turns out you were wrong. So maybe uh, if he was here, he'd give a second look at the UFOs, but I have doubts <laughs> about that. But, yeah, it's, it's interesting nowadays because the UFO field, it's, like I said, after Heineck went, it, I mean, I love Stan. I think Stan's the man, Stan Friedman. He's like a personal hero of mine. He's sort of carried on the torch as the public face of UFOs. But as he gets older, to me, it's like, I don't know where this thing is going to go from here, man, because I don't have much faith in, you know, the future of, I guess, sort of this, this subculture, if you will. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I've thought about that, too, and it, that that topic has come up in some of the interviews I've done over the last couple of months. And I, I think um, – I think there is there is still some power behind it. I and and I think podcasts and shows like yours are are proof of that. You know, we we've, we've got people like you who are keeping the conversation open and keeping the conversation interesting and you know and making sure it doesn't get stuck on some useless dead end. You know, as as long as we've got guys like you and everyone else out there doing their UFO and paranormal podcasts, letting letting people like me, you know, talk about our ideas about the phenomenon you know i think there's a lot of hope that um that ufo research will you know find a new way and you know find a new format a new a new um a new uh vehicle i don't know what you want to how you want to describe it but you know i'm hopeful that because of this because of all these podcasts because of all this awareness that i think it's going to keep continuing and you know we've got we've got um well i probably shouldn't bring this up i I was I was going to mention that that guy from uh, Blink-182, Tom DeLong. I was has going to mention ever... him, too, so it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> has, he ever, has, he, has he ever come up with his big reveal that he's been promising? No, no, not that I know yeah. of. But I, what I was going to mention was the in the sense that, like, I, I see where you're going with your line of thought, but what concerns me is, like, people respected J. Allen Hynek. He was a, he was you know the head of an astronomy department at a major university and mm-hmm. and and Stan Friedman's a, a nuclear physicist. It's like this, this is like the lineage that brought us Trump. This is like we're going to go from the head of an astronomy department, the uh, nuclear physicist to the to the lead singer of Blink One Eighty Two. It's <laughs> not <laughs> a good path, saying. my friend. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And here's here's something kind of sad along along these lines. So um, when Kufos was at its, you know, at its high point in the 70s and 80s, they had a lot of really, really amazing people working for them, all volunteers, well, mostly volunteers. Um, and when I started researching the book, as I mentioned, Mark Rodiger, who is now the scientific director of Kufos, um, you know, I, I did the book with his blessing and his encouragement, and Mark was an incredible resource to me. And when I first started out researching this, Mark gave me a long list of people who had most most of whom had been associated with Kufos at one time or another who he thought would make good interviews for the book. Now, so I started going down that list and contacting people. I got a, I got a hold of some of them. I didn't get a hold of others. The ones I did get a hold of, some of them were willing to do interviews, some of them were not, which kind of surprised me, but you know, to each his own. Um, but some of the frustrating one of the most frustrating situations was uh, there was a gentleman named Alan Hendry who had been, for a time, he was Kufos's one paid UFO investigator. 
Yeah. And he did some really, really interesting and I think milestone work in ufology. And the guy's still around, but he retired he retired from ufology several years ago and has become kind of a UFO hermit. <laughs> and I, I could never track the guy down, and it, it became a huge frustration for me because I would have people mentioning, you know, commenting on my blog and saying, hey, have you gotten a hold of Alan Hendry yet? And I would have to say, well, no, I keep coming up on dead end. <laughs> so, you know, so there, there, but my point is, so there are, there are some people who are still associated with that golden age. They're still around, but they don't always want to talk about it, and I'm yeah. not sure why. It's kind of disappointing. Well, did but you get a, also, Oh, God. Oh, I was going to say there's also a group, um, another one of these old uh, KUFOS officers, Michael Swords, who's a, a history professor in Michigan. Michael Swords hosts these annual gatherings of, I, 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 I affectionately call them the Council of Elders. They are a bunch of um, UFO reporters, a lot of who had, were associated with KUFOS back in the day, who still get together once or twice a year in Kalamazoo, Michigan, just to talk about their favorite UFO cases and and they're still doing research. They're still coming up with ideas for new ways to look at the data that they have in their files and to, you know, and to, and to come up with some new ideas for how to approach the data. Um, I don't know if you've, you know the book UFOs and Government, that gigantic, indispensable uh, book about how our government and other, other governments have approached the UFO problem. I believe so, that, yeah. that That book came about from that group of people. So, oh, wow. Um, and, so it's kind of like an invisible college in a way. It kind of is. It kind of is. The Invisible College of Kalamazoo. And they're really great people. I've been to their gatherings, uh, I think, twice now and really enjoyed myself. And, and Michael is just an amazing U, uh, UFO resource. Did you – what I was going to ask you is did you, did you get a chance to talk to Jacques Vallée uh, for the book? That's an interesting story. I'm glad you asked. So he was another one of these people who was very, very difficult – to track down, and I kept coming upon dead end after dead end after dead end. Finally, one of the, actually one of the guys from Michael Sword's group who I was just talking about, um, uh, came through with an email for Jacques, and so I, I sent a letter to Jacques, and this was just in the last few months before I had to turn my manuscript in, so I was really getting down to the wire. Uh, but I emailed Jacques, told him about the book, asked if he'd be willing to talk, and and to my great surprise, I heard back from him almost immediately, and and he said um, he said I'm going to pass on doing an interview because he said I'm afraid my memories would be faulty, so I don't want you relying on my memory. But he said, you know, I've written a lot about the subject. I've published my personal journals. You have my permission to use any of that material in your book that you'd like. Oh, that's my great. blessing. So so that was awesome awesome just to have him you know give me that you know be that generous to share his work with me um i was really disappointed that he didn't want to talk to me um because you know who better right who better that's why I asked, to talk yeah. about heineck his you know his life well not lifelong but his decades long uh friend and colleague and confidant um so long story short i wasn't able to uh interview dr valet but um, he did contact me uh, about two months ago and said, I've, Mark, I've been out of the country, but I've been anxiously awaiting your book. Could you send me a copy? So I sent him a copy, and he's, he's given me some really, really positive feedback. He doesn't agree exactly with everything I have to say in the book, 
Um, but then again, you know, he could have done an interview and then he could have corrected those things. So Which, I, at the risk, cause I read the books and now I'm <laughs> at the risk. I know you can just say, I'm not going to tell you, but I have to ask what, what didn't he agree with? I'm kind of like uh, stumped about my mind's racing, trying to figure out what he would have disagreed with. <laughs> well, you well, can I say guess, it's in confidence. I, I guess it's okay to talk about it. Oh. He, um, no, there were a couple of things, but the the one really important thing was, and I and I knew he would react this way if he ever read the book. It was pretty much a given. Was um, for a long, long time, many, many people have assumed that the character of the French ufologist in the movie Close Encounters oh. was based on Jacques Vallée. <laughs> I was going to ask you this. Yeah. Yeah. I had always thought that. I had always thought that. That's all. Me that's too. All I, had I read ever the book. Read. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just it's. It's like it's conventional wisdom. Right. Nobody ever questions it. Um, so, you know, and I was, like I said, as far as I knew, that was the true story, and that was that. Well, when I was writing the chapter of the book that dealt with the movie, um, it just so happens that because I'm a lifelong science fiction geek, I still have bins and bins of old science fiction fan magazines from the 70s, and and... When I started writing about the movie in the book, I thought, oh, I should dig out those old magazines. They'll have some good material in them. And one of the magazines, it's called, it's called Science. Oh, gosh, I can't remember the name of the magazine. Uh, I, I can go get it in a minute. but um, It's all right. But at any rate, so this one magazine had a huge special issue about Close Encounters, and they interviewed Dr. Hynek, and at one point the reporter says, um, asks him, you know, if if any true life people are represented in the movie, if the French character, for instance, represents a real person. And Heineck says, oh, yes, Claude Poher. He represents the scientific approach to the UFO phenomenon. And my jaw hit the floor. Yeah, Claude me Poher, too. When I was reading the book, I was like, what? <laughs> I, I was shocked. And, and the thing is, I had already come across Claude Poher's name several times in the narrative because mm. – he and Heineck had crossed paths a couple of times. Poher was a French astronomer who for a time actually led the French government, much wiser than our government, the French government actually formed an official scientific UFO study project. J-PAN. Yep, yep, yeah, J-PAN. Um, and Claude Poher had been the first head of that uh, organization. So he was a pretty big wheel in the UFO world. He didn't stick with it very long for reasons I don't understand, but... Um, but so, yeah, Heineck identified Poher as the model for the Lacombe character. So um, Jacques Vallée was not pleased with that. And he said, well, I have an article that shows that, um, <laughs> in fact, Lacombe was, was based on me. So we just, we had a little, we had a testy exchange of emails for about two, two weeks in July and we just kind of left it as agree well. We we'll just have to agree to disagree. <laughs> yeah, basically. Oh my I'm god! Not, I'm not going to change my and and here's the thing. I also came across after I had submitted my book to the publisher, so I couldn't include this. I came across a book that actually validated my version of events with the Claude Poher identification, and that is a there's a really wonderful book about the making of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Came out in 2007. The author, his first name is Ray, and of course I'm blanking on his last name, but it's a really, really good book. And in that book, he confirms that the Lacombe character is based on Claude Poher. 
So I felt vindicated, and I didn't feel like I had to change my story because of Dr. Valais. Wow, that's a great story. Thank you. (laughs) Well, you know, I I can tell it's a human nature. That's a yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like no, 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 bro. All right, that iconic character in the movies (laughs) is based on me. Shut up. Take that out. And you know, yeah, (laughs) I, I, you know, part of me hated to put that in the book, but the author part of me thought, hey, this is a bombshell. I have to put this in the book. This is so cool. Yeah, yeah, so, really. So of course, it, it went in the book. Yeah, yeah, that's why I reacted so much when you <laughs> went to that part because that was a bombshell to me when I was reading it. I was like, I have it right here, page three twenty, Truffaut's character. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, look for that book on the making of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and you will find verification, independent verification. Well, it's too bad that he wouldn't do the interview. I, I, I interviewed him once a long time ago, and I kind mm-hmm. of came up briefly. I forget what about. Uh, I think that I think it was about whether the government was like reading their correspondence and oh, I have to, I'll, I'll try and take out that little clip and send it to you next time. I, oh, okay. Yeah. Get a chance. Well, you know, even though, even though we had that little disagreement over some of the content of the book, he was very, very complimentary of the book, which I really appreciated. Another, another person who I just want to mention, uh, Jenny Zeidman, mm, yeah. who is, who is in the book a lot Really, really interesting person. She was another person who turned me down for an interview. In fact, really? yeah. Okay, so just for your, for your listeners, I'll just give a quick little background. Yeah, yeah. Jenny Jenny Zeidman was she took an astronomy course at Ohio State, taught by Dr. Heineck um, in the '40s. Distinguished herself as being exceptionally bright, um, and became Heineck's uh, office assistant, and then eventually co UFO investigator. This woman at age, I think her, I think she was something like twenty. 22 years old, she got top-secret clearance from the Air Force to work on Blue Book research, um, thanks to Dr. Heineck. And they were lifelong friends right. and confidants. And um, so she was one of the first people I contacted. I got her on the phone. This is all the way back to, like, 2013, probably, when I was really first starting to do the research. Got her on the phone, told her about the book, asked if she would do an interview, and she said, I've written all about my experience of those times. You're free to use any of that work. And then she hung up on me. That's the same reaction that Jock had. <laughs> and I was, I was stunned. Yeah, I was like, I'm, you, I'm you can't hang up on me. Wait a minute. But, you know, and of course I was tempted to call back, but of course I didn't. Right, she right. had spoken. I had to respect her final decision. But I'm happy to say, so a, a week or two after the book came out this summer, I got a message on Facebook from somebody I didn't know saying, hey, I am Jenny Zeidman's grandson. She would like to send you a message about your book. Can you give me your email address? <laughs> so I thought, well, okay, this is a risk, but it's a risk worth taking. So I, I gave the guy my email address. And a couple of weeks later, I got an email from Jenny. And I'll be honest, I was a little nervous about opening this email. Right, I, was I can afraid imagine, yeah. Because of her hanging up on me, I was afraid she was going to read me the riot act or something. Well, I open her letter, and she just starts right out and says, Dear Mark, you have written Alan exactly as I remember him. Oh, that's great. And I was just so flattered. And then about two weeks later, she sent me another email, and she said, Mark, I just read the book for the second time, and for the second time I ended up in tears. Hmm. So those are the two best reviews I've gotten. They're the two reviews that mean the most to me. Yeah, for sure. For the book. It, that, that was just amazing, amazing feedback to get. And 
in a weird little twist, shortly after that, I got another email from Jacques Vallée, and he said, hey, Mark, you know what's weird? In all these years, I've never actually met Jenny Zeidman. Could you put me in touch with her? Oh, wow. So I put the two of them in touch with each other a couple of weeks ago. I, I haven't heard yet if, they're, if they've become best friends. I hope they have. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to follow up on that one of these days. I'm sure in the first email he was like, can you believe he said that thing about the French guy? <laughs> that he wasn't You're me? right. You're right. <laughs> you remember, Jenny, don't you? You remember? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that's weird. I, I, it makes you wonder, though, in a sense, where it's like these people probably – he sounded like such a dynamic individual that it's like they cherish their memories. And at the same time, yeah. I can imagine being weary about like just the whole – Oh yeah. who are you and why are you writing about my friend who I loved? And yeah. in this field especially, it's not like – even, even if it was like a rock musician or something, a celebrity or something like that in mm-hmm. a sense, it's like people would still be guarded. You know what I yeah. mean? So I, I, I can kind of understand that. Yeah. Well, what was interesting was, um, as I mentioned at the outset, Mark Rodiger, you give me all these all these names of people to contact. And I just I sort of assumed going into this that if I mentioned that I was writing this book um, with the permission of Kufos, yeah, that that would just open doors and everybody would want to talk to me. Well, that turned out not to be the case. In some cases, when I mentioned Kufos, people would say, oh, no, thanks. I don't want to do an interview for that book. And I, so I realized that associating myself with Kufos was, in some cases, it was a huge advantage, and in some cases, apparently, it was a liability, which, you know, and I don't think that's peculiar um, to Kufos. I think that probably would have happened if I had said, you know, I'm doing this book with the blessing of MUFON or with the blessing right, of right. NICAP or APRO, you know, APRO. Anybody would have, you know, I always would have run across that, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with them <laughs> because, you know, there's so much of that in ufology. So that was kind of an interesting lesson I learned early on. Well, it's interesting. At the end of the book, um, you could almost look at it from a historical perspective and I guess sociological perspective is uh, when he when and Heineck moves to Arizona, it almost could be titled like Heineck meets ufology. It was like that was his – he, it seemed like he finally got the, the 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 crappy part of the field, like got a hold of him in a sense, convinced him to move to Arizona, yeah. promised him all this money, um, you know, and then just kind of disrupted his whole life. It, it was kind of heartbreaking for me having, you know, over the course of the book where it was like, dude, don't go. <laughs> yeah, You're yeah. not getting $2 million from some French uh, astronomer guy or whatever, or actor or something to open a giant UFO center. Like, you're getting... You're getting sucked into ufology. This is the birth of yeah. ufology here, man. Yeah, it, it is a sad chapter, but that was another case where um, along along the lines of the Sagan and Hynek story where I was, re- I was nearing my deadline and I didn't know how that story would end. Same thing happened with the Arizona story because so much of that story hinges on this couple, uh, Tina Choate and Brian Myers, who, who – convinced Heineck to, to move him and his wife down to Arizona and to start up this UFO, this mythical UFO research center. Um, Brian and Tina have been UFO bad guys for like 30 years, oh, wow. in, in part because of this whole episode with Dr. Heineck, but also in part because there are some 
there are some case files that belonged, and I, I'm going to get this wrong now. I can't. Oh no, they're the ones who own the APRO files. Yes, that's it exactly. Well, they are bad guys. Huh? <laughs> yeah. So they were. They yeah. So they they were they were associated with the disappearance of those files. They have not spoken to anybody about any of this for 30 years, and it, whenever I talked to Mark Rodiger about it, he would just shake his head and say, "Forget it. They're never going to talk to you. They won't talk to anybody." Um. Well, with about a month left before my publisher's deadline, I tracked them down. Nice. I, I can't I can't tell you how I tracked them down because good, that good. would violate their privacy, but I tracked them down, got them on the phone, and they were willing to talk for the first time in 30 years. They were willing to talk about this. It took a while. We actually had about, I think, three phone calls, average about an hour long each phone call, before they felt comfortable enough to actually talk on the record. So I really had to do some work yeah. to get this interview, but then we had that, you know, then we talked for the that last time when they were wi willing to go on the record, and they shared a whole lot with me. Now they have, um, I don't think it really comes through in the book, but they had their own story that they wanted to tell, hmm. which didn't always match up with the story that I was trying to tell. Yeah, yeah. So because of that, about 90% of our interview wasn't really anything I could use. Not that there was no value in what they told me. They told me a lot of interesting stories. They just didn't fit into what I wanted to do with the book, so I couldn't use any of it. But that, you know, that remaining 10% that actually was relevant was solid gold. So I was able to actually, you know, finish finish that story, the Arizona story, and you know, put some sort of a cap on it, some sort of finish on it as far as as far as Brian and Tina were concerned. So I was yeah. very happy with that. And you know, and even at the end they were like, "Well, they said we're really nervous about doing this interview. Would <laughs> would you be would you be willing to um send us the chapter, you know, when you have it written up? Would you give us, you know, editorial approval?" And I said, "No." Yeah, good. And and they said, "Well, okay, we'll talk to you anyway." So that was that was kind of amazing. You know, they yeah. these two had a lot to these two had a lot of reasons for not wanting to talk to me. And I'm very, very gr grateful for them for, you know, dropping their guard. And I just told them, I said, look, I, I will, I'll be fair with you. I'll treat you fairly. That's, that's all I can promise. And they yeah, said, exactly. okay, we, we trust you on that. And, and I, I'd like to think I succeeded. Yeah, I mean, you were just telling a story here. I mean, you're not. Yeah. Yeah, those APRO files are like the, the uh, Alexandria Library of Ufology. Yeah. They've been missing for a long, long time. Well, and you know what? I never even asked them about it because I just thought it's what, that'll probably they'll probably clam up and not yeah, talk to me anymore. Yeah, then they would anymore, get all pissed so. off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's no, weird no though. Yeah. As soon as you ask, as soon as you mentioned, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know how it is as an interviewer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as you mentioned like missing files, I was like, that's got to be the APRO files. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's definitely it. Yeah. It's a. It's. Yeah, man. I really enjoyed the book a lot. I really loved it a lot. And uh, I'll be. You were talking about his friend there and. I gotta say, man, when I read the when I got to the end of that book, I got choked up myself. I got really sad. Uh, uh, you know, obviously, obviously, spoiler alert: J. Allen Hanek passes away at the end of the book. It was it was really, you know, it was sad in a lot of ways. It was really. Yeah. I loved how you tied the whole thing in through with uh, Haley's comment. It was awesome. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I thought that was that was interesting. So he was born in 1910 when Haley's comment was in the sky. And he passed away in 1986 when Halley's Comet came back, just like Mark Twain before him. 
Yeah, it was pretty amazing. And and the whole book, too, I was like, because I didn't really know uh, when he passed away. So I was kind of, it would come up every now and again. And I'm like, oh, God, I hope he makes it to Helly's Comet <laughs> at the end. So <laughs> at the end, uh, when you write the movie of this book, that should be, uh, you, like I said, you can tell you're a screenwriter because you kind of like uh, bookended the <laughs> life, oh, okay. uh, the universe bookended it. Uh, for him. But. Oh yeah, I know. I just, you know, it wasn't too hard to work with what I had, really. Yeah. You, you know who's my hero in the book? I just want to put yeah. in a plug for this guy, is William Powers, who comes up when Dr. Heineck was teaching at Northwestern. Okay, Bill yep, Powers yep. worked for Dr. Heineck for several years and was his basically his right hand man. Um, often when it came to his his Project Blue Book investigations, Bill was. Bill was just kind of a hero to me. He was another one of these people who people told me I would never track him down, and I tracked him down, and we spent several hours talking on Skype. He always wanted to talk on Skype because he wanted there to be visual contact. And he was, you know, he was a very old man. He was clearly in very frail, fragile health, but he was so much fun to talk to. He was so funny, and he was so gracious and so thoughtful, and I just loved the guy, and I loved I, – I just – I fit in as many Bill Powers stories as I possibly could nice, in the book, nice. probably more than I should have, but I just thought, this guy is so cool. His his thinking needs to be preserved. So I just I kept putting him in the book every chance I got, and I thought, well, if my editor makes me cut it, I'll cut it, but but he never did. So, so all the Bill Powers stuff remains, and the guy was truly entertaining. Yeah, he was a cool character in the book. It was uh, at, least, at least a lot think about you know when it, like i said because it, it there's a part of me that when the book ends it ends you know obviously he passed away like in the mid 80s mm-hmm. just things haven't been the same since man and i yeah. don't know you know it just makes me very sad because no one's considering this i guess here's a question for you like because he was advocating for this scientific look at this do you think just like we we lost him and then there was no one because it seems like this, it jumped immediately to the ETH. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it was like it yeah, seemed absolutely. like yeah. once he was gone, there was no one advocating just for uh, an honest look at this. Then it became mm-hmm. a loaded deal on the UFO side, where it was like they're aliens, man. Uh huh. Well, there's there's one major factor here that I didn't discuss it in the book because I didn't think it was really uh, germane to the story I wanted to tell. But there is a big chapter in this story that I think doesn't get talked about, and that is that after Dr. Hynek moved to Arizona yeah. uh, in 84, he was still associated with KUFOS back up in Chicago, but he wasn't actively involved. So basically, he had a lot of young, energetic, um, excited guys up in Chicago running KUFOS, and... Um, as Michael Soares is quoted in my book, he's saying they really were in need of adult supervision. Yeah. And it was right about this time that people started, um, people started getting uh, enamored with the Roswell story. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of happened that so after Dr. Hynek passes away, Kufos goes through this period of sort of trying to figure out what what their mission is now. What are they supposed to be about now that their guiding light is gone? Right, right. And there, and there really is no natural successor to take Hynek's place. What are they going to do? Well, for, for, various, for various reasons, Kufos got involved in this search for proof of, of the Roswell saucer crash. 
and poured a lot of resources, a lot of human resources, a lot of money oh, into God. trying to make a big thing about the Roswell case. Um, and in my opinion, that was a tragic mistake because I am not a, I am not I will say it right out. I am not a fan of the Roswell story. I think it's I think if there was anything that could be proven, we would know it by now. I think it has just been such a huge black hole for you for the study of UFOs. It's it, been a bit of a boondoggle. It has, but unfortunately, it that has become the face of yeah. UFOs to the vast majority mm-hmm. of the public. Right. And and part of that is because these guys at Kufos just kind of went Roswell crazy in the late 80s. You know, they started doing archaeological digs and they started, you know, finding all the smoking guns that all fizzled and it's 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 really sad. And I think if Heineck knew that that was what Kufos ended up being about, they're not about that now. They have come they have sort of come back to reality, I'm happy to say. But for well, a do while they, there... Do they exist still now? I mean, what's the status? Well, they, they do. Mark Rodiger is still active. And uh, I mentioned his, his colleague, Mary Kastner, who Mary has a whole bunch of Kufos' case files in her basement. And I know Mary's been, Mary's been writing a book for a few years. I think I can probably talk. I, don't, I won't give a whole lot of details, but she's been working on a book about um, uh, the Heflin photographs. Yeah analyzing the Heflin photographs. Uh, Mark Rodiger is, um, he's done a lot of work on close encounters of the second kind. He's especially interested in cases that involve um, UFOs having an effect on motor vehicles, shutting off engines, headlights. That's kind of his specialty. So he still does study in, in that field, at least probably others. And he consults on a lot of other things. He, I know he does some work with Leslie Keene, who wrote the wonderful UFOs, uh, mm-hmm. pilots, generals, and politicians. I, I know I'm getting that subtitle wrong. but So I know Mark still does a lot of work here and there with people who, um, uh, people who want, you know, want his expertise. He, they also do um, – Mark also does some of the expert on-camera interviews for the Canadian series Close Encounters. Okay. Which is one of the better UFO shows, in my opinion. So, well, so yeah, they're they're still around and they're still active. <laughs> they're not. What's that? Says a low barrier to cross. <laughs> well, that's true. Um, so yeah, they're they're still around. They're still active, but there there's just no funding. Right, right. Yeah, there's no there's no money at all. So there's just not much going on. Well, there's just there's not the excitement around this topic anymore. There, there was yeah. in the book. That's mm-hmm. the real. Um, like I said, that fear of missing out, that fear of having missed out that I experienced yeah. reading the book, it was like, oh, my God, people took this seriously. <laughs> like, what, what what a time to be alive. I wish uh, I wish I had been uh, been there back in the day. You know, I hope, has there been any – I know, obviously, the book just came out a few months ago, but uh, giving your background and everything, is there is there any chance this could be a movie? Because I think it's awesome. Well, it's funny you ask that. There is – Short, right around the time the book came out, there an announcement came out um, from the History Channel that they had just bought a series called Blue, tentatively titled Blue Book. That's all obviously all about Project Blue Book and the work of J. Allen Hynek. Now, this is completely separate from my book. Um, the producers of that show have contacted me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and it's possible that that could lead to me being involved in that show, but it's far, it's way too early to say. So, yeah. 
Um, so there is that project. Um, I am actually also um, – we're, we're involved in um, shopping the film rights to my book, of course. Yeah. Um, and I'm also actually developing a pitch for a TV series based on one tiny little part of the book that I'm, I can't identify – um, but it's to me, it's a really interesting and fun chapter in the UFO story um, I'm developing as a TV series pitch. So if I, I'm lucky, I'll have a chance to maybe pitch that around to studios uh, later this year. Yeah. All right. Interesting. Interesting. Pose, you always talk about this on every show, but uh, I'll try and cut this. I'll, I'll, I'll give like a summary, and then you can kind of like flesh it out a little bit if you want. Okay. That, that was the swamp gas thing. Uh, of course. I knew yeah. you'd ask. <laughs> I put it down <laughs> to the very end, dude. I, I put like it down that. to the very end because I know that's like the thing that everybody uh, probably asks about. And I, like I said, I'll give a thumbnail uh, like from what I picked up on this because the idea is that everyone always thinks that Heineck went there and uh, immediately dismissed the swamp gas, uh, dismissed the UFO sighting as swamp gas, and everybody hated him. And it, he was just lying. That was the idea. He was lying to yeah. to make up this excuse for the uh, Air Force. Right. And uh, what you elucidate in the book, and I don't know if anyone's ever done uh, as thorough an examination of this case, of this of this incident, let's say, the swamp gas incident, uh, than you did. So I was really, really impressed by the depth with which you dug into this. Uh, but, it, it, you know, what people don't know, I'm sure, and, or realize, is that when he got there, like six or seven people were like, yeah, it seemed like swamp gas. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that, was, that was like, what? This guy's <laughs> off the hook, man. Like, give me a break. Yeah, so, totally. And and I uh, talk a little bit about this part of the story because it really stood out to me. Because you speculate in the book about what may have happened here was that the day of the swamp ass press conference, there was a newspaper article, a yeah. mysterious newspaper article, that said uh, the Air Force is going to have a press conference and say it's swamp gas. And, like, yeah. you, you, no one's quite sure where it came from, and you speculate that maybe it was planted by Blue Book. I'm totally, I'm totally convinced. I have no proof of it, but I'm totally convinced that that article was written by Hector Quintanilla, or at least, you know, at least directed by Hector Quintanilla, who, who was at the time, 1966, the project chief of Project Blue Book. And most people, I think, think would agree that Quintanilla was the worst project chief that Blue Book ever had. He was outright hostile towards the UFO phenomenon. He was hostile towards Dr. Heineck. He hated all of it. Um, but yeah, the swamp gas case comes along and um, it's, it's multiple sightings going on over the course of several nights. So it's really a mass UFO sightings, which of course always gather a lot of attention. So it becomes national news. Um, Blue Book at first does not want to send Heineck to Michigan to investigate, um, but they kind of have to change their tune and they send him to Michigan because they're under so much pressure from the Pentagon to make this story go away. So Heineck spends three days in southern Michigan interviewing all these witnesses and, and visiting the scenes of the sightings, and nothing really adds up to Heineck. You know, he's hearing he's hearing... There's a certain consistency. People saw floating lights. Uh, this farm family saw floating lights down in the swamp behind their house. Can I jump in you, one moment? I just want sure. to make one point uh, that sure. I just was stunning to me in the book. 
Um, and I'm not sure if you're going to mention it because you said he interviewed a bunch of witnesses. But, folks, there was a girls' dormitory that saw the UFO. There were 75 girls that saw this <laughs> yeah. UFO. And he was allowed to interview two. Yeah. Two of the girls. So when people get on his case about saying it was swamp gas, it's it's like, <laughs> can you imagine, you know, give me a break, man. There were 75 yeah. witnesses, and he was only allowed to interview two. And they weren't the two primary witnesses either. Right. They were witnesses who didn't look out their windows till later. Yeah. Yeah, the whole thing is it's almost criminal, but you can understand because the dorm house mother was so protective of her students, and it was obvious that this was such a sensational situation. It was in the media everywhere. The dorm house mother, she was just feeling protective. Oh, yeah, for of sure. Her students, he so was she a only let Heidi talk to two of them. Yeah, but, yeah, it, it is crazy. But, but again, that's one of the things that adds to uh, Hynek's frustration with the case. He didn't have access to all the witnesses. Even the farm family, who should have been uh, Frank Manor and his son, who were two of the prime witnesses, he could barely talk to them because by the time he showed up at their farm, their farm was overrun with, with policemen and news reporters and sightseers who all wanted to talk to these people. So Heineck could, had to, like, take a number to talk to, the, to talk to the prime witnesses. The whole thing was a complete fiasco. And the whole time, Heineck is under pressure from his boss, Quintanilla, to come up with a natural, quote, unquote, explanation. In other words, do not say it was flying saw. Do not say it was spaceships. You know, come up with a right. natural explanation. Well, yeah, as you mentioned, and I'm going to I'm going to put more of this on my blog because because it's a pretty interesting story. This was a big chunk that had to be cut out of the book because it got so long. But yeah, during the course of those 3 days, there are between like 6 and 8 different people who apparently suggested the, to Heineck that they were dealing with swamp gas. Right. This includes one of the prime witnesses, the county civil defense agent who was called to the college dorm and was watching these lights in the arboretum along with the college students, he said that he told Heineck, when I first saw it, I thought it was swamp gas. So, so this, you know, this idea that Heineck came up with the swamp gas idea, you know, out of, out of his, you know, what, and, you know, and threw that out at the press conference out of desperation just to, you know, cover for the air force it's totally not true. Heineck, right. Heineck was being told all week, I think it's swamp gas. I think it's swamp gas. You, could, you should look at the swamp gas theory. So it's pretty interesting how that whole thing turned out. But here's the really crazy twist of it. As, as mad as people were at Heineck for the swamp gas explanation, because, of course, everybody back at Evanston, Dr. Valet, all of Heineck's invisible college cohorts, you know, all of his allies in the UFO research world um, were all expecting Heineck to say, this is the big one. You know, this is the case that proves right, that right. we are being visited from other worlds. And they were all pissed at him because he didn't say that, because he said it was swamp gas. So he's got people on both sides furious with him. The Air Force is furious because, you know, just because. <laughs> just because, face, yeah. because Heineck let things get out of hand. And, and Heineck's UFO colleagues are pissed at him because they think he told a lie to cover for the Air Force. So, um, you know, Heineck beat it out of town because everybody in Michigan hated him. He was being lampooned in newspaper editorial cartoons all over the country. 
which he started a collection of, by the way. He had a, <laughs> I oh, never nice. saw this, but at the time in 1966, Heineck kept a, a folder or a, you know, a three-ring binder where he preserved all of these cartoons making fun of him. Um, but um, so, so he leaves town right away. But I'm telling you, I'm looking through his correspondence files at the Northwestern University Archives from the, this period of time, uh, spring 1966, going into summer and fall 1966, and you would not believe the amount of letters Heineck got from people all over the world in the wake of the swamp gas case. Yeah. Instead of ruining his career, <laughs> ruining his career, the swamp gas case made him an international celebrity, and he was he was the go-to UFO expert from that moment on. And these letters are just amazing. He's got just dozens and dozens of letters, and all they're really long letters from people saying. I want to tell you about my experience. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, Heineck just became the man, period, and there was never anybody else to rival him from that point forward. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine on a small scale where it's like, I don't know if you – yeah, I'm sure you've run into this just telling people what you write about and what you've written about, you know, where people are like, oh, oh let me tell you about what happened to me, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and that's – I'm glad you brought that up. It's I'm the so committee complex that, that, that Heineck would talk about. <laughs> right, it is. It is so amazing, and this has borne out for me so many times in social situations where some, some, sometimes it's because I'm talking about my book, but not always. But people will hear me mention UFOs um, in a serious way, like mention UFOs without making fun of them. And it is amazing how often people will sort of, sort of bend their ear to hear what I'm talking about and they'll come over and say, hey, you know, I, I saw something once. And then before I know it, I'm hearing this UFO report from yeah. somebody who has never told a soul about this yeah. ever in their life. Mm-hmm. It happens to me all the time. And I, and I, I like to tell people, just, just bring up UFOs casually in conversation in a group of people. And you would be amazed how many people will say, you know, I saw something once. As long as the topic is brought up in the right way where people don't feel threatened, and feel that you know, and and feel secure that they won't be ridiculed. They'll start opening up about their experience. It's amazing. Yeah, it really makes you wonder if there was like something that happened, uh, you know, in the interim when when because people were all excited and talking about this, and now it's like yeah. it's crazy because people. I feel that like nowadays people genuinely believe in UFOs, but they don't really mm-hmm. care to do anything about it. That's like the, that's like the weird part, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, well, they they do do something about it. I'm I'm going to contradict you there because part of my part of my preparation for writing this book and for yeah. writing my blog was that I became a MUFON field investigator for several years because I really wanted to I really wanted to talk face to face with UFO witnesses and find out what the experience was like and find out how it affected them and find out you know what made them decide to report it. And and here's what they do do. You you were, you were saying they don't do anything, and I'm sure the vast majority of people don't. But there That's are a I lot mean. of people. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there are a lot of people who, because because of what they see on cable TV, they're aware of MUFON, and so they'll report their case to MUFON. So MUFON gets thousands and thousands of case reports. The vast majority of them are pretty useless. You know, there's well, there's, sure, yeah. in, there's insufficient data. Or it's pretty clear that the 
so-called witness is pulling your leg. They're making stuff up. Um, but there are, every once in a while, there is a really, I, I have a list of absolutely crazy sightings that I investigated that I can't explain, and they're some of my favorite stories. But so, so at any rate, I'm, I'm making a short story long, but people, uh, a lot of people will report to MUFON, and their motivations, I found, are really interesting. They don't necessarily want you to come out and interview them. They just say, well, I just wanted to put it out th- there and see if anybody else has seen the same thing. Yeah. The, and the other big reason is, well, I, wa- I want somebody to explain to me what I saw. Those are like the two big reasons. Somebody please explain to me what I saw, and please tell me if anybody else has ever seen the same thing, because that helps them get a grip on their experience. Yeah. Yeah, I just suppose, I guess, I, what I was saying is, like, people just don't, the average person, you know what I'm saying? The mainstream does not even give it a second thought. But at the same time, it's like a trick, in a sense, like that Kaiser Soze thing, where it's like, they believe that UFOs are, they believe UFOs are real, but they just don't give it a second thought. Yeah, It's a very weird uh, state of society, I guess you'd say. I think that's a fair point, yeah. You know, it's it's frustrating, in a sense, where it's like, it, they've given up. They've given up on the idea that the government will tell – the government knows and they won't tell us, period, the end. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, I think if you did a general poll on people, I think that would be like – it was like, do you believe in UFOs? Do you believe in UFOs? But that the government won't tell you, I think would be like the – would win overwhelmingly. Probably. So whether that's the case or not, <laughs> I don't know because in the book you say Heineck said uh, his his estimation was that it was more – a case of ignorance rather than trying to yeah. conceal the truth. Yeah, that was, that was his gut feeling. Yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, if they can't figure it out, the last thing they want people to know is that they can't figure it out. So. <laughs> yes, exactly. They are going to cover that up like crazy. Right, right. The cover-up is they don't <laughs> – is that they had like a world-class astronomer from Northwestern who was trying to figure it out, and they couldn't figure it out. So. Yeah, you want to hear a weird, weird story? This is something that sure. – um, <laughs> I think you're on the right um, show for that. This was something that I left out of the book because I didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. Um, But we talked before about the Washington, D.C. merry-go-round, that case in the early 50s where the sky above Washington, D.C. was just filled with flying saucers for two weekends in a row. Um, And the Edward Ruppelt was kept away from investigating the case. Ruppelt tells in his book, um, which is a very, very good book, by the way. Um, he tells the story of how shortly before that Washington, D.C. mass sighting, he was having a talk with somebody who works for a government agency that cannot be identified, and this person told him, allegedly, that his agency had been tracking UFO sightings, and they had seen some consistent patterns, and that they had predicted that there was about to be a major sighting above a major American city, probably New York City or Washington, D.C. Wow. Now, there's no way to verify this story. Yeah. You know, Ruppelt is long gone. He can't tell us, he's, you know, he can't tell us where he heard this story. There's no way to trace it. But isn't that a tantalizing story, though? Because if that's true, why didn't they keep using that trick to predict UFO sightings? It, I mean, it's a crazy, it's 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 a it's an intriguing and tantalizing story. But but then you think about it in a second, and it's like that can't possibly be true. It makes no sense. Yeah, it's weird. That's weird. Yeah. 
just another one of those bizarre mysteries in UFO world that I don't know. I don't know if it can ever be explained. Yeah, it's like how do they? Yeah, yeah. Well, I will say though, I've said on the show before. Now, you know, looking back on not necessarily these cases from the Heineck book, but I think that somebody, somebody, please, listeners, needs to like do a look back at this thing with the with the drones. I think the drones can explain mm. a lot of UFO sightings. Um, a lot. I mean, you know, I don't know how far back you can go, but like mm-hmm. we need to start looking at it. Going, could it have been a drone? Based on what we know now about these drones, could it have been a drone? You know. Yeah. But we're at the uh, end of the show, Mark. So I'm going to let oh you my go because I know bad. I've yeah. Thank you so much for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. I absolutely love the book. You know that. Um, Thank you. Thank I really, you. I, I thought that. it was amazing. Well, thank you, and thanks for having me on the show. It's been a lot of fun talking with you. Well, I hope you had fun, man. I tried to uh, bring as much as obscure stuff as I could <laughs> to the <laughs> I appreciate it to the table and uh, cite some of the uh, some of the more obscure stuff that I thought was relevant to today's ufology too, in a lot of ways. Yeah, you know. So I really appreciate it, and you're one of the good guys, man. Uh, you know, well, I hope this book gets into the hands of people that that need to read it. You know what I'm saying? Like the astronomers and mm-hmm. and people like that. It's like we need more we need somebody who's brave as brave as J. Allen Hynek to step forward from a major university and go, let's investigate this stuff. Yeah. You know yeah, if not, only fingers. Not crossed. oh hey, they're aliens, you know, that's the thing. Yeah. That's it's the old Sagan trick. They get right, caught exactly. up in this mess. And if they say, hey, let's look at UFOs, it's like, oh, you believe in little green men. We need someone who's brave and strong enough to stand up and say, no, I just think that this thing has persisted for for decades, and let's get to the bottom of it once and for all. I couldn't agree with you more. So let's hope that happens. We need a new jail yeah. on it. But until then, we can celebrate the uh, the original. So thank you so much for being on the show, <laughs> folks. You're welcome. The book is The Close Encounters Man. How One Man Made the World Believe in UFOs. Outstanding stuff from Mark O'Connell. Thank you very much, sir. Good night. Thanks. Good night. All right, folks. There you go. That was Mark O'Connell talking about the Close Encounters Man. Fantastic stuff. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I really did. Um, Yeah, I can't put the book over enough. I left out so much stuff in that interview. There were so many elements to... uh, J. Allen Hynek's life, uh, especially the astronomy part, we didn't really get into, except for the Sputnik uh, story. And um, just his whole evolution as a ufologist is fascinating, fascinating stuff. He wasn't even a ufologist, man. He was like a pre-ufologist, which is even better. And on that note, I don't know what else I have to say. It's been a while uh, since we did the show. I'm back from Canada. You should have listened to the uh, Good Parade last week to get the Canada recap. Next week on the program, I cannot tell you who the guests will be. I've got a couple of folks lined up. We're going to go through a little run here of uh, first-time guests here on the final season. So stay tuned for that. And uh, I presume we'll have the usual show next week, Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. So until that time, thank you, my friends, for listening. This is Tim and all signing off.